0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 80 from American soil. I'm Pat Ryan, I'm your host today. This podcast brings you the experts from NASA, scientists, engineers, astronauts, other leaders to tell you the coolest parts about what's going on at NASA. And today we're talking again about launching astronauts from the USA, USA, with two different vehicles that are being developed by two private companies. Boeing and SpaceX. They are part of the Commercial Crew Program that's designed to enable the capability of launching people into space by private businesses. Now, earlier in the podcast, we had an opportunity to talk with the Commercial Crew Program Manager, Kathy Leaders, about the overall program history and progress. Uh, Today, we're joined by Steve Stitch. He's the deputy for Commercial Crew based here at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. We're gonna talk about the uh, crews for the very first missions that have been announced. Also talk about how these crews are working with the companies to design the vehicles. We talk about the upcoming test missions and what happens after that. How the commercial crew program that's enabling some of these milestones is playing a huge role in the future of uh, human spaceflight by private industry. Now, a couple of quick notes up front. We recorded this interview on December 14th of last year. 2018 so when you hear us make any reference to something happening next year that means 2019 this year and second a note about references to astronaut eric Bowe. He was one of the first four astronauts assigned to the Commercial Crew Program back in 2015 and has worked with the private companies to help develop the vehicles, as Steve Stitch will mention. Now, Bo was assigned to fly the first crewed mission of the Boeing Starliner, but in January 2019, he was removed from that assignment for medical reasons and has taken over as the assistant to the Chief of the Astronaut Office for Commercial Crew. He's swapping jobs with astronaut Mike Fink, Fink has been added to the crew for the Boeing Starliner crew flight test later this year. Like Bo and other CCP astronauts, Fink attended test pilot school and worked as a flight test engineer during his career in the Air Force. So, let's get right into it. We'll jump ahead to our talk with Steve Stitch. Enjoy. A
1: minus 5, second 10, Mark.
0: We'll for the she goes. we have a podcast. Steve Stitch, thank you for coming and joining us today. Um, it's a pretty exciting time at NASA and and really the whole you know human space flight uh, program. We're getting ready to launch people to space from the USA. There are. Two commercial crew vehicles in work. Astronauts getting ready to fly in both of them. Um, let's talk about the astronauts. Let's start there because that's what I think people connect with the most. Um, tell me about the the human beings who have been assigned to the uh, to do the first flights on these two vehicles.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for thanks for inviting me today. It's great to be here. And as you said, it is a very exciting time in commercial crew, uh, getting ready for these early crewed flights. Uh, You know recently um we named the crew members for all these flights so from my perspective once you name crews it starts to become a lot more real you know these flights are going to happen so you know we've had uh we've had doug hurley bob benkin sonny williams and eric bow with us uh since uh, 2015 they were named as the cadre to help develop the vehicles to help make sure um crew considerations were uh, at the forefront of the development of these these vehicles and so they've been on all the testing of displays and suits and so forth but then recently you know we named for uh for the first boeing crewed flight test uh eric Bow, nicole mann chris ferguson for that flight and then uh, for this first spacex flight um, doug hurley and bob binken and they've been working uh that vehicle for a long time so right. those crews were named and now instead of working together as a cadre before they were working together on both vehicles so those first four were working on both boeing and spacex now they are very much divided and the the boeing crew members are working the boeing test flight and they're starting to train and still do display development those sorts of things
0: and there are astronauts assigned to the second flight absolutely absolutely so for the uh
1: first um what we call post certification mission or it's really that first boeing mission that will support the space station increment we have sunny williams and josh Cassada assigned to that flight and then victor glover and mike hopkins for the the spacex the equivalent spacex flight which is which is really the purpose of commercial crew you know we have these test flights we have uncrewed and crewed test flights but really our overall mission is to support the space station program in the increment to deliver the crew there for the vehicles to stay for that increment and then to bring the crew home at the end of the increment.
0: Because it's always been part of the program with the space station that for every crew member on orbit there has to be a way to get off right away. Absolutely. And so if we we're going to send more crew, expand the crew to do more work on orbit, there has to be a way for them to get there and, and for them to get home. And these two vehicles are designed to fill that role, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the the Boeing Starliner and the SpaceX Dragon are designed to be that transportation mode, almost like a taxi to take you up and return you. But also, if something were to go wrong with the space station, whether there would be a medical emergency or some other reason for the crew to leave space station, that vehicle has to has to sit there be on station and be ready and we actually have in our requirements it has to be available for up to 210 days so that's the design requirements all the vehicles are designed to be there for 210 days to serve as this lifeboat Uh, and we hope we never have to use that obviously you hope you never have to evacuate station or ever have a medical reason to return a crew
0: member, but that's part of the mission, so. And that's about the same length of time that the Soyuz vehicles It's very are, comparable
1: to Soyuz. Okay. Soyuz today stays, you know, six months, or maybe a little longer, maybe a little less, depending on the increment, but these vehicles are really designed to sort of be that Soyuz replacement from a U.S. perspective.
0: Let me take a step back in case this is a question that people don't know the answer to. Why Did NASA decide to work with these private companies to have them build their own vehicles to go to the space station instead of NASA making its own? You know,
1: I I would say these commercial vehicles are sort of a follow-on to the cargo cargo program. So uh, several years ago, you know, in 2008, we started the the COTS program, and then that led to the commercial resupply contracts uh, for uh, SpaceX and Orbital uh, to uh, take cargo up back and forth to the space Mm -hmm. station right and then that worked out pretty well and people started looking as the shuttle was retiring uh what would be a good mechanism to uh to take our crews to the space station and return them and um this idea of having commercial companies uh, provide this service sort of arose from that from that early cargo days leveraging that work uh and taking advantage of the launch vehicles that are flying today and so Um, it just seemed like a natural follow on to cargo, uh, and, uh, and having the companies provide this service to NASA. So unlike uh, other programs like Apollo or, um, space shuttle, NASA doesn't own the vehicles per se. It's not, they're not owned by the government. We contract for a service and for the the companies to deliver the crew and then some cargo and return the crew and cargo. And so it's this unique relationship and it gives the companies an opportunity to take these vehicles. and and then broadly expand this commercial enterprise of space. You know, for a long time, it's been only the US government that's been sending people to space, but you can envision in the future, you know, there's a role for companies to provide other people into space and even commercial space stations, if you will. So it's trying to facilitate and expand this whole commercial endeavor Uh, in low earth
0: orbit. And that's even part of the International Space Station's mission is to to help develop the commercial space flight as well as the commercial use of space, commercial uh, research in space. Um, So this is an extension of that 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 same goal of the agency is in order to, to to work with private companies.
1: Yeah absolutely if you look at the space station today you've got all kinds of companies that are flying their payloads going through a safety process uh, for their own needs on Space Station. Uh, you know, we deploy uh, little CubeSats out of the yeah. Space Station. We do all kinds of experiments and research for the medical industry and other industries to to further there. And, you know, it's really they have the business model. It's not NASA as much deciding whether we want to fly a payload or not. They propose their experiment. We provide them the ride on the cargo vehicles, and then we provide them power and data on Space Station. So it's almost like a perfect a perfect marriage, if you will. You have this great laboratory. Yeah. How do you take advantage of it? Are we in the government the only people that are smart enough to figure out what the right experiments are? No, you offer it yeah. to industry and, and you really have this this kind of burgeoning commercial space sector, if you will.
0: Yeah. I don't wanna to go too far down that rabbit hole, but let's get back to, we were talking about the crews, that crew members that had been assigned for the, uh, the first Boeing flights and the first SpaceX flights. Um, Give me a sense of what they've gone through to get prepared. You mentioned how the, the original four commercial crew astronauts were involved with both companies in trying to—being uh, uh, of the human the, the, an, what is it? An avenue for the for the human input into the development of a brand new spacecraft. Now that there are uh, that are, there are more and they're assigned to specific vehicles, what sort of work are they doing right now? What kind of training are they involved in to uh, to get ready for their that first flight?
1: Yeah. So they're they're they really have a twofold. First of all, they're all test pilots, so they all right. have this test pilot background. Uh, so they know what it's like to develop a new. Uh, a new system and deploy it from a test pilot perspective so they're still helping the companies you know refine uh cockpit layouts and displays and things like that from a test pilot perspective but they're also knowing they're going to fly on that vehicle they're also doing training so they're doing simulations and practices of how to do the launch phase and what kind of aborts you would do in that phase if you had to have an abort How do you do um, the rendezvous approach? How do you live in the spacecraft? Uh, How do you do docking? Um, How do you monitor the automated systems? These vehicles are very, when I look back, I spent many, many years in my career working shuttle. Right. Shuttle, the cockpit ad, switches everywhere. It's (laughs) back from the 70s. Well, these vehicles, if you go in and look, there are some switches, but it's mostly automated. It's mostly a software screen interface kind of has the modern world is adapted to where Computers and displays, and right. that kind of technology is there. So, how do you monitor that technology? How do you deorbit from the space station? How do you undock? How do you land? So, they're working through all those things. And then contingencies. You know, how do you get out of the spacecraft if you have a uh, a landing that's a little off nominal? Um, how do you get out if you land in the water? Um, you know, SpaceX plans to land in the water for every flight. Boeing has the ability for aborts to land in the water, and then they plan to land on land all those contingencies Uh, they're also working on the spacesuits and the spacesuit development uh, we mandated that you had to have a a launch and entry suit to protect uh, the crew should you know you have uh, any off-nominal situation during launch and so they're testing the suits how do the suits work with the seats displays um, all those kind of things that are very crew specific even even the details of where to put you know, they have, uh, instead of a lot of paper products, they have an iPad for procedures or a kind of a tablet. Right. Where do you put that? How do you work those tablets? All those kind
0: of things, all those details that you really need as a crew member to go fly successfully. It, it seems like it's, it's in, in one sense, it's not different, really, from the way astronauts used to chain, train to fly in space shuttle missions. But what is different is nobody's ever done this before. They, and, and they're, in a sense, I, help, I guess, help developing the, the procedures for how these missions will be flown. Yeah, right. I mean, in, in
1: early days, you know, there the were early shuttle crew members, Bob Cripp and John Young, that were in the middle of developing procedures for shuttle. And now for these vehicles, we have uh, our astronauts now in the middle of that procedure development, helping the companies with that uh, based on their—many of them are experienced shuttle crew members. They're helping the companies on how you develop those procedures. Uh, and how they want to lay it out and how they want to do it. So it's pretty exciting for a crew member too, because they're kind of writing the book on how those first flights are going to be flown. You know, a lot of us came into shuttle later after it had been flying and a lot of the procedures and the vehicle was developed. Well, now you're doing it all from scratch and while the vehicle's being built and tested, which
0: is pretty <laughs> exciting actually. Yeah, for, to be to be doing something brand new, yes. being on the ground floor. Yeah, yeah
1: like for it. me personally, I mean, I, I've been at NASA quite a number of years, uh, over 30, and then you know, it's sort of re-energized me as you work with two different companies, different approaches to building two different vehicles. Uh, it's exciting because the vehicles are have the same requirements, but each company did it a little differently. And so you get to work and understand why each company chose different paths. And, yeah.
0: and so it's a lot of fun. In terms of the, the training itself, where do the astronauts do that work? Is it here in Houston where they live or in the company locations elsewhere? So that's a good, really good question. So uh,
1: the training is a little different for both companies. Uh, for Boeing, the Starliner training is done here, actually, at, at JSC. So there's a mission simulator uh, over in Building 5, just like we had for shuttle. They do a lot of training there, and then there's a mock-up over in, in our, uh, our Building 9, and they can go in and practice different things in both those facilities. Uh, and, obviously, there's a component of space station training that's done, obviously, here
0: in Houston. for SpaceX, Because they are going to the space station. They're going these to the space station. So there is about.
1: some amount of space station training that they're getting because they're going to live on the space station for, for a period of time while they're going to be there. Uh, obviously, the the crews we talked about for those increment missions, they're going to be there. Most of their time is going to be spent on space station. For these test flights, you know, that we dock for a week or two and then come back home. So they do station training here. And then SpaceX—it's different. The training is actually at Hawthorne, uh, in, That's in Los California, Angeles. Where it's very close to the Los Angeles International Airport, and they have a simulator there. They have a mock-up and simulators there, and so the crews fly there to do display development and training there. And the spacesuits are there at Hawthorne, and so it's a little different approach. You know, Boeing has chosen to do it here in Houston, and and uh, SpaceX is trying to chosen to do it at Hawthorne. So. And,
0: and just because I'm just thinking of it, both of these vehicles plan to launch from Florida. Absolutely.
1: Right? Both okay. vehicles are launching from Florida. Uh, the Starliner launches from the Atlas uh, launch pad 41 and then uh, and then SpaceX is planning to launch from the old shuttle launch pad 39A in Florida. So, so they all start kind of at the same place yeah. in Florida and you know they end up landing in different places and then the training happens in different places so
0: and they and they land in different places you mentioned before that uh spacex like their crew like their cargo vehicle this would land in the ocean
1: absolutely so spacex's plans are to land uh just off the coast of florida near the kennedy space center that's their landing point that they prefer Uh, for later missions they're also looking at another Gulf of Mexico landing site as well but they really like to land just off the coast of Florida and then they can bring their capsule back tow it back in and take it back to the hangar and refurbish it there Boeing's got a different approach and and so if you look at the SpaceX capsule it kind of might remind you of of like an Apollo water landing Um, Boeing's approach is different so Boeing has chosen And SpaceX has chosen to build a new vehicle for us. For every flight, we get a brand new capsule because it lands in water, just like Apollo. Mm. Boeing has a reusable spacecraft approach, so their spacecraft are going to land on land, and they're using two landing sites uh, that are somewhat familiar to many people, the White Sands Missile Range or uh, an area called the White Sands Space Harbor, which we use for a backup shuttle landing in New Mexico. It's near uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico and then uh Dugway Proving Ground is another uh in Utah is another primary landing site for for Boeing. Okay. And then they've got a few other ones Edwards Air Force Base is one. So these sites are you know for landing a capsule you need a site that's um a big open area right. where you can safely land and not have any um, terrain that's going to impact the landing and then you know parachutes get deployed at different stages and end up on this this open area. And so you have to kind of have a big area to land in. Um, and then Boeing uses airbags to uh, cushion their, their landing, wow. uh, to land on land, which is a little different technique. And, yeah. And so they would then, you know, have a crew, um, out there at the landing site, get the crew out of the vehicle, get the cargo out and then, um, tow the vehicle back to, to Florida, both all the final prep for the launches also occur in Florida. Um, in different locations, down right. at, the, off at the Kennedy Space Center and then over on the Air Force side.
0: We touched on this a minute ago, and I'd like to get you to, to tell me a little more about the missions themselves, these first test flights. I, I think it, even for me, I work here and I've been aware commercial crew, but I went for a long time not realizing that these first test flights were gonna to go to the space station and we're gonna to dock to it. Um, tell me about, in, in, the, in the case of the first Let's, let's start with the first test flights that don't have astronauts on them. What's the what's the profile of that mission? What's gonna happen? Where does it go and do? Okay, yeah. Um, all these test flights are really testing
1: out all the key parts of the mission that you need to uh, to be ready for crew and then be ready for these longer missions on the increment. So, um, we'll start out with a launch, we'll just talk Dragon. Okay. The Starliner's exactly the same, but start out launching from um, from the Kennedy Space Center um, we will launch go into orbit and then um, start executing a series of rendezvous maneuvers uh, first day we kind of check the vehicle out make sure all the sensors are working right the docking systems working and then um, the rendezvous day can be kind of this what I would call the second day of the mission in terms of a crew day that we're used to or the third day and it will go up and um, start to use its rendezvous sensors to acquire the space station when you get in closer and then um, fly a quarter in and then dock to the space station and so that tests all all the key parts of the vehicle if you think about it, we're testing the launch vehicle separation flying in space uh, doing navigation in space all the systems that you need to keep the crew healthy and safe and then um, all the rendezvous sensors and then then in on the docking uh, to test all those systems out before we put a crew on board. And then, you know, d- depending on the mission, we can stay up to 30 days. Most of the companies would l- want to stay between seven to seven days to two weeks. And we work with the space station program on how long is that dock duration going to be because um, you know, they have a lot of traffic. As how you know, it fits into whatever is going on. How does it fit into on? the cargo delivery missions or progress? or the international partner vehicles, uh, ATV, HTV vehicles coming up to the space station. Um, and then stay there for uh, some number of days, open the hatches. Uh, we'll have some cargo on these vehicles that for the space station program. Don't want to waste
0: the opportunity. Right. And
1: also, it's a down mass uh, opportunity to return science as well. Uh, and then while it's docked, um, you know, we use the space station. Uh, obviously, the crews won't spend much time in these vehicles once you're in increment, they're on the space station and you're only going to use this return vehicle if you need to for an emergency or the nominal landing. Um, test that the systems talk to each other, that space station could talk to the crew vehicles, that we can exchange airflow and, and keep the air conditioned in these vehicles um and then there's some flight test objectives that each each company has um they're going to look also at the engineering performance um, you know how do the heaters perform uh, how do the systems perform uh, see we'll, if everything we'll, works we'll the we'll get a way chance it was to designed pow- exactly we'll get a chance to power you know some boxes some part of the avionics system gets powered down to save power um, space station provides power to the vehicle so we'll test that and then when we get through all those tests uh, we'll Test the undocking and maneuvering away, um, stepping from the space station and then executing the deorbit burn, going through the reentry time frame, parachute system, landing, recovery of the vehicle. So it's kind of an end to end test of uh, what it would be for the crewed test flights without the crew. And so mm-hmm. you'll get a real good check out of the whole
0: vehicle and it sounds like that could be anywhere from maybe just a week to maybe almost a month
1: it could be a week to a month we've told uh, the companies Boeing and SpaceX hey we really need flexibility so these early flights let's plan for up to 30 days Uh, knowing the vehicle is designed to be there for much longer uh, but but they're planning for that and so We have that flexibility to determine the mission duration uh when we get a little closer to flight yeah you
0: start adding in more uh, you know two more lines of vehicles that could be coming and you start to have a a traffic jam around the international space
1: absolutely and it's something that the station program manages well every day and they're excited about having these two new u.s vehicles to manage Mm -hmm. the traffic flow
0: is when we get to the first test flights of the two vehicles where there will be human crew members on board is it essentially the same kind of profile as the uncrewed flights or is there some other special cool uh, aspect added to that
1: no uh both vehicles will fly the exact same profile and uh largely automated um you know they both have to keep the crew healthy and so that aspect's a little different you know waste management and hygiene and how the crew will eat Mm -hmm. and sleeping and all that Uh, but you know if if you kind of had those two flights side-by-side and you were comparing the trajectory, um, for the most part they're going to look very much the same. And so we really want to test out the systems in this uncrewed manner. And both companies proposed this to NASA when they submitted their proposals. And we accepted it and thought it was a really good idea to, and you know, you learn everything every time you fly a flight, especially with a new vehicle. So we have an opportunity to learn from these two test flights and then fold that into the crew flights and make improvements
0: where we need to. You learn all the things that you don't yet know you don't know. Correct.
1: With every new vehicle, uh, you know, my experience has been there's, there's something that doesn't go maybe as planned. And so you can go back on the ground and fix that, whether it be a slight software problem or some sure. problem with the system. So that's why it's really a, it's really a good approach for a commercial crew we can learn with these partners and then uh, it gives you a, s- a sense of comfort for the safety for the crew when you go through a test flight and you prove out the vehicle in an unmanned configuration and then come back and do it with crew.
0: So on the first test flights for each vehicle we're still looking at them only being at the station a matter of a couple of weeks. Correct. Do they have space station responsibilities when they get there?
1: They don't become expedition crew members per se because they haven't quite received all the training yeah. they've received safety training but there's certain things they can help the the space station increment crews with certainly cargo logistics of of loading and unloading um and there's probably some things on station they can actually help with some of them have spent time on station right. so they can can be fairly helpful but they're not their focus on their training today is really Understanding and knowing these vehicles inside and out uh, for these first flights. Yeah, and those uh, first
0: two flights of what is that? It's four of the five crew members have all been to the space station before. On yeah, shuttle yeah, missions.
1: absolutely. And it's actually five when you include the Boeing. Boeing has three. Chris Ferguson is one of the crew members as well. So, so um, yeah, four of the five. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Four of the five have been to the space station. So, uh, and so they can, um, yeah, they can actually help out kind of an extra set of hands, if you will, while, right. while they're there. And they have to learn a little bit about space station, you know, uh, the hygiene systems on space station and food and so forth. And so they get that training as well.
0: But they're there primarily to be focused on testing out their vehicle. Absolutely. A shakedown.
1: We, absolutely. It's a, sh- it's a shakedown test flight. And so the priority in all their training is really uh, understanding these vehicles. And so that's why, you know, many of them were assigned as part of the cadre. They got to work with the companies inside and out when they were designing the vehicles and watching them kind of grow up from from just, you know, a few parts to now spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And now they can get in them and fly them, uh, fly these test flights.
0: See the system that they tried to help design. They can see
1: the systems that they their handiwork was involved in actually helping put the systems together.
0: So then, the question becomes: What's the significant difference? I mean, you take the you take what you learn on those first crewed flights, and fold it back into the system and make any changes that you need to make. What becomes different then for the second set of test flights, uh, with the, what I, they call the, the post certification missions? Yeah. So th- so those
1: I wouldn't consider test flights, right? So we've got two test okay. flights for each. We've got um, an uncrewed test flight and a crewed test flight. Right. Uh, and then we move into these
0: post-certification missions. And that's where things... Um, and I guess it's the, it's the first flight that leads to the certification.
1: Well, post-certification really means the vehicle has been certified after these two test flights. And then we're ready to do the mission. And the mission really is supporting the spa- space station. So having a vehicle that can transport four crew and some cargo, and, and including returning some, some powered cargo for mm-hmm. the space station program. And then having that vehicle serve as a lifeboat, so we really want to test them out twice—once uncrewed and once crewed—and then you know our overall objective is to then have these vehicles be ready for these regular increments um, that the space station program needs. So at that point, you know every flight you're learning. Still, my experience in human space flight has been. Uh, it's just a complicated business, and you always want to be looking at what happened in the previous flight. Sure. Looking at all the data.
0: Um, you do that with machines on Earth, too. We do that. They, right, they, right. They always right. show you something about themselves right. that and you didn't know. these vehicles,
1: you know, human spaceflight, um, the systems are complicated, and both companies do a great job of putting together uh, these complicated vehicles, but we'll always be watching and learning and looking at the data and making sure it's performing the way it should. So. We'll always be learning, but when we get into these post-certification missions, it's really for space station. Yeah, that.
0: now it's official. It's, it's we're really in, in business. Exactly. Um, so that. If that means, uh, how long would they be? How long, instead, would they still be only a week or two or 30-day missions, or would they no, then
1: become longer? No, these post-certification missions can be whatever the station, the vehicles would be certified for this long duration. So they could be six-month flights. They could be six-month mm-hmm. flights. And we'll, we'll, depending on when these missions fly, we will work with station to figure out how long they should be, because they have to work into the station rotation. And so,
0: right and you mentioned a second ago that each of them is capable of bringing four crew members to space there's only two assigned to each one so i'm guessing you're going to fill those other seats
1: yes yes those other missions will get uh other crew members assigned the two that are assigned to those going currently are really you know if you will the the pilot and the commander the people that would be responsible for flying the vehicle and then we'll have two more mission specialists that gets assigned later on
0: to fill out that complement of, of four uh, for for the space station increment need. But in, but all four of them would then arrive at the station and become space station Absolutely. crew members. Absolutely at that
1: point they become space station crew members and those those crew members are trained on the vehicles but they're also trained to do uh, the task on space station that they need to
0: do. So it's similar to the current crew members who are also trained on the vehicle that they ride up and down, in this case the Soyuz, these crew members will be cha- trained on their starliner or their crew dragon as well as on all the regular things that station crew members are
1: yeah absolutely they'll get a little different version of training you know the the crew test flights they're going to get a little bit of space space station training to do the things you need to do exercise um, hygiene uh, use the the the, the potty on space station if you will Mm -hmm. Uh, but then these these other Crew members uh, for Boeing and and SpaceX, uh, Sonny Williams and Josh Cassada and Victor Glover and Mike Hopkins, they're going to be part of an increment that's going to stay on the space station okay. for however long the space station program needs them to stay. So
0: and at the time they fly, they will have two additional crewmates who will also become station crew They will have crew two addition additional
1: crewmates assigned to those missions, just like you know every, every most Soyuzes today have three, sometimes yeah. two, but you'll but have that that increment crew but
0: and that's the point right by the time we get to there and these post-certification missions are flying we've added this new conduit for for supplying the space station with crew members and with cargo absolutely, absolutely. Up and, down. and we'll
1: have the ability to add an extra crew member today you know, Soyuz can can fly three we'll have a fourth crew member and the idea behind that was you know we got this great if, if you look at what is the limiting factor sometimes, and how much science can get done yeah it it ends up being it ends up being crew time on orbit, and so if you add an extra crew member, you can get more science done on the space station, can accomplish more research and and that's one of the goals of our program is to sort of expand the amount of research that can happen on yeah.
0: space station. I'm, I, just in my head, I'm thinking, you know, theoretically, all the tasks that need to be done to maintain the station are already being done among the five or six crew members who are there now. So anybody else that you add is 100% other stuff. Well, the hours may be broken out amongst other people, but you're adding that many more man hours of, of capability to do other things. Yeah, absolutely. You subtract out the amount of time they need to, to sleep,
1: and take care of that need right. and do those sorts of things that that extra time they have is really you know free time to do to do science because you're right the space station today is maintained by a crew of six and so you're adding an extra us crew or the, usos crew the so.
0: science office in the space station program must be beside itself about the prospect of getting that much more time yeah in the they,
1: they can't wait to have these vehicles and have that extra time and they also can't wait to have a little more cargo up and then an opportunity on a, on a more frequent basis to return return cargo.
0: Right. Uh, right now, the only way they're really getting it down in, in any quantity, any serious quantity, is on the, the Dragon cargo ships. They get a little more on Soyuzes, but this would allow a lot of science to be returned to the scientists to do their to, to continue their research,
1: absolutely, and it gives you another opportunity to return that that science a little bit more science because you're right. Today we rely very heavily on Dragon to return all the science, and you do get a little bit in Soyuz, but but they don't but they don't have the capability to return a lot. So we have a couple powered payloads that can can return scientific samples that are you know in a cool environment, and we can bring them back uh, on our vehicles. And that was a requirement from the beginning. Station wanted the ability to launch that both that cargo and also return that cargo.
0: You said a minute ago that the, the traffic pattern, if you will, would then become, I guess, the purview of the space station program. Here's what we need and here's where we can fit it in. Do you guys have any sense at this point of, of how frequently then down the road these vehicles may be flying?
1: Yeah, we've, uh, we've been working with the space station program and we really have the vehicle set up to fly each company um, have a vehicle ready one, one vehicle per year. So one Boeing flight per year, uh, one SpaceX flight per year. In fact, uh, those missions are actually on the contract today. So oh. they are, they already okay. have three flights on contract. So if you think about SpaceX, they right now have, uh, an uncrewed test flight that they're working on, uh, gonna launch very early next year, a crewed test flight, and then they have three of these station missions on contract same thing for boeing they okay. have they have those those five flights and so uh you, you know if you look at vehicles in flow um if you go down to the the kennedy space center for example uh and look at hardware uh for the orbital flight test uh for boeing uh, all the hardware is there the, the atlas launch vehicles already uh, they're being processed uh, by uh, united launch alliance and the vehicle for that flight is being built in the um, Crew and cargo processing facility. That's used mm-hmm. to be the old Orbiter processing facility three. Right, and then for SpaceX, uh, the launch vehicle for uh, demonstration mission one, which will fly early next year, um, uh, is there. And both the first and second stage are there for that Falcon 9 rocket, and then the Dragon capsule is is there. Both it has two parts: a trunk and. It, uh, the main part of the vehicle it's it's already there if you went to other places around the country you'd see the other pieces inflow and for boeing the service modules are boeing has a crew module and a service module much right. like apollo those are starting to be built and assembled there at the c3pf and spacex has also their uh crew dragons you could see the the crew flight test vehicles there at hawthorne and then this uh, first increment missions vehicle is is there at Hawthorne being wow. built. So, lots of hardware all across the country. It's it's really an incredible time to be part <laughs> of this program.
0: You mentioned acronyms, and you just flew one by me that I don't want to let go unremarked upon. The C3PF. What? Yeah, he said. <laughs> Let's see C3PF, and I'll have to think about what
1: this is now. But that's commercial a t- crew. Processing, processing facility, 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 I guess. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's clever.
1: Yeah, that, that they, you know, <laughs> there's a little marketing toward all these things, but, and sure. and of course, it wouldn't be NASA without me throwing out an acronym. I'm, I try not to, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so that's where Boeing's assembling their vehicles in Florida. So leveraging right. facilities that were there for a Space Shuttle and now repurposed for a commercial crew.
0: If each company is planning to fly once a year, are they like, offset by six months so they that would the, be
1: they would be there would be one vehicle you know flying in the first part of the year and another in the second six months of the year if you think about these six-month missions mm-hmm. uh, and we've kind of have to orchestrate how those fly with space station but so we, we've had to put these things on contract and and have these vehicles being built up to support the the mission needs right. of the space station program
0: but then the four crew members replace four crew members and it uh, it, it keeps this the crew complement
1: of. absolutely that's the concept right this would this would be the one line
0: there will still be a Soyuz line going up and I, I was just about to to go there this is not meant to get rid of Soyuz as a means of, of flying to the space station right? no
1: we'll still have Soyuz missions and we'll still have a complement of crew members um, you know flying that increment on the Soyuz and then we'll have Another complement of increment crew members flying on the U.S. vehicle. And so it'll be a little it'll be a little different since Soyuz has been doing all the crew rotations right. for some period of time. Mm-hmm. But now there'll be a U.S. vehicle and and a Russian vehicle
0: doing those crew rotations. Does it move all the American astronauts onto the American vehicles?
1: No, they'll still be American astronauts. On uh, Soyuz. The, the plan fly is to fly, fly them on Soyuz. Because okay. they're flying up as a team. Think about, you know, the right. this increment crew, they they were there together. There's always been a U.S crew member is part of right. an increment and the same thing with the Russians and so we'll we'll just have to work out who flies on what vehicle and and, and so there
0: be, could be astronauts from other nations agencies absolutely. that will fly A- on the American yeah, that,
1: vehicles. that's been the whole that's been the whole point of the program in fact we have been sharing data with international partners on these vehicles and we have meetings to explain how the vehicles work and because their astronauts literally are going to fly on these vehicles sure
0: because it, up until now, the station has been coordinating the efforts of space agencies from different countries. Now it's going to have to also work in coordinating with these two companies with their own vehicles too. Um, for instance, in in the in terms of mission control, um, do Boeing and SpaceX set up their own mission control center for, and operate when their vehicle is flying? That's a really good question. So uh, the answer is yes. Uh, for the the
1: vehicle flying up th- each company has their own mission control for that vehicle so in the case of the the dragon uh that mission control center is actually out at spacex in hawthorne california which is as i said close to the la airport right. international airport and so the flight will be flown from there um their launch control is actually going to be uh, at the kennedy space center out of an old fire shuttle firing room uh, Boeing actually has mission control here in Houston, uh, in Building Thirty, where here uh, at the Johnson at Space Center at the Johnson Center. Space Center, where you know the, gosh, Apollo missions were controlled from, all the space shuttle missions were controlled mm-hmm. from. Back to Apollo Gemini, Soyuz, back four, to Gemini I think four or six. I'd have yeah. to go look. Um, yeah, somebody's so, already looking it up and so, telling so us. So <laughs> Bo- Boeing would yes yes. Uh, so yeah, Boeing would use that. That control center and the Boeing flight control team would be here in Houston. And there's still an ISS flight control team, you know, controlling the space station. And so now that team gets to work with two new control centers, right? Just like when we work space shuttle missions, the space shuttle flight control team and the ISS team had to work together to bring the two vehicles together and exchange the right data. Um, and at, also worked
0: with the Russian flight controllers and perhaps European or Canadian. Controller.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, so we have two new. Uh, you know, we've been integrating the cargo vehicles. Uh, the, each cargo vehicle on the U.S. side has their own has their own control center, and so they've been integrated into the space station flight control team. So, this is just two new vehicles, and and so it's pretty exciting. And I've gotten to participate in in simulations. You know, we have mission a mission management team, and so we've been practicing uh, that. In addition to uh, getting the vehicles ready and working with the flight control team, and we throw in anomalies and how you're going to disposition those, and how you're going to work uh, the launch countdown and giving the go for launch, and so we've been doing that in parallel with getting the vehicles ready and getting the crews trained. So, you know, when you add all those things up, it's a pretty exciting time frame.
0: Yeah, it sounds in some respects as though integrating Boeing and SpaceX's operations is not too different than in. In, uh, integrating the operations of, of of another space agency in in the in the partnership, it's just it's bringing in another company with its own is contributing its own hardware and has its own interests in how it goes, and they have to they have to work together with everybody yes. in order to make one program work.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, integrating those flight control teams has been pretty pretty easy because you know uh, we've. I would say we figured out how to do that over 50 years of U.S. spaceflight experience, and yeah. so it's pretty easy to integrate another team in and figure out how to exchange data and and uh, how to track the vehicles and how to work together as a team. And there's flight rules and procedures, and so the ops teams. You know, I was a flight director at one point, and I've I'm not heavily involved in ops these days, but you can you can just see that it it's very similar to what we did for uh, for space shuttle or other programs, right. and so. Uh, it's pretty exciting to, to do that and watch the teams train and get ready and you know throw in the malfunctions. And I've heard
0: that some of those simulations are they're starting to happen around here more frequently. They they are. I mean, we just did a,
1: a, a sim with Boeing um, uh, this week actually, so um, where we practiced a, a launch, starting at launch and going all the way through docking and reviewing all the systems to make sure at the mission management team we would be go for docking and we had the space station program part of that and we simulated a practice mmt for starliner and then one for um with the i international space station mission management team right went through that whole time frame it was a long it's been it was a long day (laughs) which is great because in some ways you know if you think about our ultimate goal is to be doing this for real and so It's exciting to be practicing that in the middle of all the other development that we're doing.
0: You mentioned that the the current contracts with the two companies are for three, if if I can use this, you tell me if it's wrong, uh, (laughs) three operational missions. After you get done with the test, you get three operational missions. Do do we envision that Boeing and SpaceX would continue this into the indefinite future.
1: Yeah, well, they we have a, awarded three for each. There's there's actually six on the contract, so they each get six missions. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, as long as space station uh, is there, however long the life of space station is, we envision these vehicles, uh, you know, flying up and serving as the transportation vehicle and then the lifeboat. And we just have to make sure as station gets extended, we look at. The lead time required to, to build the vehicle and get the launch vehicle ready, and, and then, yeah, we could continue to serve this function.
0: From NASA's point of view, it's not a finite program, but at least a, as long as there's a, a destination it's, to fly to.
1: Station is our destination right now from a NASA perspective, so as long as space station's viable, this, this, these vehicles make sense to do this function from a U.S.
0: perspective. From the company's points of view, can they do anything else they want to with their space vehicle? yeah they could take the vehicle and uh as
1: long as they meet nasa's mission needs they could take the vehicle and and uh down the road propose a different mission uh because it's a commercial capability uh um, it's, they, they it's their spaceship it's their spacecraft it's their mission control um, it's their launch vehicles and the, and you know in the case of the pads spacex is leasing pad Thirty-Nine A from nasa but they could propose a non-NASA mission, and that's something that we actually encourage them to do. Uh, If you think about, um, we really have two purposes. It's to support the space station program, and and most of my time is spent working on these missions for space station, but it's also to foster this commercial, uh, this, you know, flying people into low Earth orbit on these vehicles, and so they could propose their own missions and do their Do their own things with these vehicles and that's part of the idea of commercialization you know it's right it's the government is there as um, a bit of a anchor tenant let's just say and then the companies can go propose um to other entities uh, other missions
0: a lot of people have made that argument and and have heard it over the years that it's not like boeing's never flown in space before or never wanted to and i just boeing as the example but they needed a reason to make the investment decision to do this, or in in this case, to get some seed money from NASA to help fund the the development of that. And that's exactly, many people will say, that's exactly the role that the government ought to take to help encourage businesses and then get out of their way.
1: Yeah, it's a a different model a little bit from what NASA's done in the past, where NASA was in charge of the mission, owned the vehicles, uh, and end-to-end. Now it's this... We are buying a service, and, and I would say we're deeply involved in the missions from a perspective of um, checking to make sure that the requirements on these vehicles meet our safety requirements and what I would call design and construction standards the way you do a weld or put wiring together or whatever. We check, NASA checks all that to make sure we meet the safety specifications that we've outlined uh, per the contract. Uh, and then, but then, you know outside the NASA missions, it's really up to the companies to take these vehicles that we've helped them develop and also, you know, look for other customers down the road. Now, right now, we're kind of in the middle of getting the vehicles developed, so... Um, it's early. It's pretty early in that in that regard, and obviously the demands that we're putting on the companies to get these vehicles flying are pretty, pretty heavy, but down the road, certainly, that's what we look for these companies to do. And if you kind of look back at many other industries, you think of the rail railroad industry or early aviation industry, right. the government kind of seeded that work and then, you know, we let commercial companies take on and and now there's just if you think about air travel and the number of commercial flights a day, it's just staggering. Every time I go to an airport, I just I'm amazed at the logistics <laughs> of how planes come in and out, passengers are loaded, Luggage is offloaded and it really works even though sometimes we complain when it doesn't go well for us Yeah, it really works pretty well. Could you envision? Uh, maybe not at the magnitude of the flights, but something mm-hmm. like that in, okay. in a space
0: th- low-earth orbit someday <laughs> It absolutely could happen and in the meantime in the process if private companies are flying to the International Space Station nasa can spend its time on other things absolutely absolutely we um you know if you look at how the launch vehicles were
1: developed um, you know we're we're utilizing the atlas boeing has chose atlas uh, and that vehicle has been modified slightly for a commercial crew but largely it's the vehicle that's that's flying uh today on all the other atlas missions and then spacex has has the falcon 9 flying today for other customers and we're leveraging that so if you sort of think about the way we're utilizing those those launch vehicles and just building the spacecraft were effectively uh, fairly cost effective in the way we're doing these missions and so it allows nasa to take the rest of its resources and then think about what are they going to do with using orion and the space launch system and the gateway and other missions there and so it's a pretty exciting time in the agency if you look at the number of uh, vehicles being developed it's it's incredible when we have you know Uh, Dragon uh, crewed vehicle, we have uh, the CST-100 vehicle, and we have Orion and the Space Launch System all being developed at the same time. You know, a lot of us were used to shuttle and space station where we built space station 20 years ago. Shuttle was built for me a generation ago, and now we've got all this development work. It's it's pretty exciting for our engineers and, and for the country in general, I think. I think many people don't realize how, within aerospace, it's kind of turning over that, how do you go build these complicated vehicles? It's the first here.
0: time that a new human-rated vehicle has been built in, as you say, in, in a generation. generation. So if you think about
1: generations, you know, people that designed the space shuttle aren't in the workforce today. Mm -hmm. These vehicles are now serving to sort of uh, re-energize, I think, industry and then our engineers today of how to build these vehicles. And then if you think about long-term goals of the moon or Mars, you know, we're building a a workforce and team and an industry that's capable of doing those missions as well. And I, I don't think people see commercial crew doing that, but in some ways we're because you know, but they may
0: once it once they start flying. Right,
1: right. We're kind of re-energizing America industry to go do some of these more complicated missions later on, whether it be building a lander or a gateway habitat or all these different missions.
0: It'll sure be interesting to uh, to to watch it all happen. Uh, you know, coming up in the next year, we should see both vehicles fly a couple of times, and. Uh, be real it'll be cool to see what actually happens yeah
1: i mean we're you know for 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 spacex we have actually have a have a date on the range for me i've been in the commercial crew for three years you know when we first got that date with the range it was kind of just a big emotional thing for me because (laughs) we've been working so hard and now both emotionally from a this is great and then also oh, wow, we really have a date on the range. <laughs> it's not and we theoretical make sure, anymore. Right, it's not theoretical. I've got a date on the on the eastern range to fly one of these uncrewed demonstration missions. So, you know, when the crews are named, it becomes real. And then when you get see hardware in Florida, it becomes real. And then when you go, SpaceX goes and asks the range for a date, mm. um, and you go look out there today uh, on the eastern range schedule, and we have a date on the range, It it really makes it a lot more real. And, you know, flying these uncrewed, test flights are just as tough as flying with crew. And so we're taking the time and energy to get it right and review all the data. That's really what we're doing right now is reviewing the data for these to get ready for these uh, crew, uncrewed test flights.
0: Be really cool to see it happen. Steve, thanks for bringing us up to speed. Yeah, my my pleasure.
1: And the, the neat thing about the work I get to do is, you know, there's so many people here at the Johnson Space Center working so hard behind the scenes, not only here at JSC but at the Marshall Space Flight Center, at the Kennedy Space Flight Center. And you know these people are working hard every day and as we approach the holidays, they're not spending time with their families sometimes to get wow. this work done. And I, I couldn't say enough about the team that we have that's helping put all these vehicles together, not only on the government NASA side, but also at SpaceX and Boeing.
0: It's exciting to get ready to go fly. It is, and I'm looking forward to it. Great. Steve, thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Hey, there is more after the end of the show. Thanks for listening. our conversation with Steve Stitch, we learned a lot about the Commercial Crew Program today, and you can find out more online. Go to nasa.gov slash commercial crew. Uh, for the latest updates on the schedule for some of these missions that Steve talked about, uh, check out the schedule at nasa.gov ntv ntv, like in NASA television, you can also subscribe to our social media channels that will be posting updates as we get closer to the launch days for uh, both the Boeing and the SpaceX vehicle. Uh, check out the social media. The Commercial Crew is on Facebook, uh, at NASA Commercial Crew, on Twitter, at Commercial underscore Crew. And uh, if you check both of those places, you can also use the hashtag AskNASA uh, on any of your favorite platforms and to submit questions to us for the podcast or ideas about other things we could do. While you're online, you should also check out the other NASA podcasts. Go to uh, nasa.gov podcasts. You can find uh, all of our episodes. You can also find the other podcasts that are done inside NASA, Gravity Assist, NASA in Silicon Valley, Rocket Ranch. They're all pretty good, so give them a listen. Uh, This podcast was recorded on December 14th, 2018. Thanks to Gary Jordan, Alex Perryman, Nora Moran, Kelly Humphreys, Kyle Herring, and Cindy MacArthur. And thanks again to Steve Stitch for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.